Welcome to Be Set Free, the radio outreach of Whitefields Community Church in Longmont, Colorado. Be Set Free features the teaching ministry of Pastor Nick Cady. Pastor Nick's desire is to bring the gospel into our lives so we can experience the joy and freedom that can only be found through Jesus. Today's message comes from I Could Never Believe in a God Who, our series in which we examine and respond to serious objections to Christianity. Here is Pastor Nick. If you would please open with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 10. We're starting a new series this morning, and we're going to be reading from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 10, and uh, I'll show you how this ties in. So let's go ahead and read Luke 10, verses 38 through 42. So we're going to begin Luke 10, starting verse 38. Now as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving. And she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things. But one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word, and as we come to it this morning, we ask that you would speak to us through it. We ask that you would teach us. Lord, where there are things that we have incorrectly believed, Lord, we ask that you would correct those things where there are attitudes that are not according to your heart. Lord, would you shape us in those areas? Lord, overall, we ask that we would be shaped by your word in the ways that we think, in the ways that we act, in the ways that we live. And so, Lord, we come desiring to have you shape us and form us and desiring to hear from you. So, Lord, we ask that you'd speak to us and we'd hear, and we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. So again, this morning, we're beginning a new series. The series is called, I Could Never Believe in a God Who. We're taking the next seven weeks to honestly look at some of the biggest objections that people have when it comes to Christianity and the Bible. A few months ago, I posted a poll online that uh, I shared with, uh, with you guys on Realm, which is kind of our internal website. Many of you filled it out and shared it with friends. We got a lot of responses. And the question I asked in that poll was this. How would you complete this sentence? I could never believe in a God who... I gave some, some possible uh, opportunities for different answers, and I also gave just kind of blank slate, like you can fill it out. And so we took the responses we got from that poll, but also uh, what we learned from other research, and we identified seven topics which people say make it hard for them to believe in God or to embrace Christianity. Now, why are we doing this? Why are we taking seven weeks to study about this? I'll give you three reasons. Number one, because as Christians, we believe that what you believe matters. So we believe that what a person believes matters. You know, the very most famous verse in the Bible is probably John 3.16. What does it say? It says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever, what, believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. In other words, what you believe matters. Eternity hinges on what you believe. And so therefore, it only makes sense that we would help people in areas where they struggle to believe, that we'd help address some of those issues which create barriers to faith and belief. Secondly, our other reason we're doing this is because we want to help you in the areas where you struggle. We know that not only from this poll, but we know just from knowing you and knowing ourselves that many of you who are Christians— you, you want to follow Jesus, you want to believe, you're, you're trying, and yet there are still things that you would say, you know what, I honestly still struggle with a couple things in regard to Christianity and the Bible and believing in God. And so we want to help you strengthen your faith by helping address some of those things that create 
barriers or hurdles to belief. And thirdly, our other goal with this is that we want to equip you. We want to equip you to be able to talk to others. We know that you have friends, you have neighbors, you have coworkers who talk about these topics that we're going to be talking about over these next seven weeks. And we want to equip you to be able to talk with them, give you some kind of tools, some information, some guidelines so you can talk with them and hopefully help them move from doubt and unbelief to faith and belief. Now, being that today is Mother's Day, we decided to kick off this series with a topic that is pertinent to you ladies, and that is this. When it comes to Christianity and the Bible, one of the struggles that some people have is that they say, I could never believe in a God who encourages the suppression of women and minorities. So that's what we're going to be talking about. Does the Bible encourage the suppression of women and minorities? So let's talk about the word on the street. What is the word on the street when it comes to Christianity, women, and minorities? Well, you might look at media, you might look at different things. I did a few searches online just to see what is the word on the street about Christians when it comes to women and minorities. And you won't be surprised to hear this, but Christianity is sometimes accused of being complicit in the suppression of women and minorities. For example, people have used the Bible in the past to defend the practice of slavery in the United States. Domineering husbands have used the Bible to control their wives or to control their families and keep them under their thumb. Research shows, this is interesting, that the type of man who is most likely to abuse their wife or girlfriend is a man who claims to be a Christian and yet does not go to church. Those are both two important factors. They claim to be a Christian and do not go to church. So if there's a man who claims to be a Christian and yet is not connected to a church, that is the number one demographic for men who beat their wives and girlfriends. Now, some of them feel justified in doing so, and they feel that the Bible even gives them permission to act in that way and to domineer over their wives. I mean, truly, doesn't the Bible say, wives, submit to your husbands? And so when it comes to minorities, right, has not the Bible been used throughout history by those in power to solidify their power and to suppress those under their authority? And if people question their power, they would turn to verses like Romans chapter 13, which says that God has put those people who are in power in power. And so therefore to question their authority is basically to question God's authority. And they, people have abused those passages in order to keep people uh, suppressed and subjected to them. Some people would claim that when it comes to women and minorities, Christianity has led to injustice and inequality, and their conclusion is this, wouldn't we all just be better off if we could move on past, throw off the shackles of religion, and build together a world of justice and equality? Now, first of all, we have to acknowledge this simple fact. The Bible has been used by people throughout history to justify the suppression of women and minorities. We don't deny that. We don't hide from that fact. But here's what we want to talk about today. Does a true reading of the Bible lead to those things? Or are those things rather a misuse of the Bible? That's really the big question. And here's what I would say to you. This is my big idea is this. A close look at the Bible will reveal this, that those who use the Bible in these ways are misusing the Bible. Because if you look at what the Bible really has to say about women and minorities, which is what we're going to do today, here's what you're going to see. According to the Bible, women and minorities are three things. Equal, they are unique, and they are loved. So women and minorities, according to the Bible, are equal, they are unique, and they are loved. We're going to break down each of those. But listen, the fact that some people have misused the Bible to do things which the Bible did not intend 
That should not surprise us. I mean, isn't it true that people use good things for bad purposes all the time? Most of you probably came here in a car. So is a car a good thing? Well, I think a car is a good thing. You know, you use a car to come to church. You use a car to get your children safely to school. I used a car on one occasion to save somebody's life. So is a car a good thing? Well, I think so. But can you use a car in a way that it was never intended to be used in order to do bad things? Absolutely. Can you use a car in a way that hurts people? Yes. Can you use it as a weapon? Of course, it wasn't designed to be used that way. It wasn't intended to be used that way. But you can use it in that way, can't you? See, the problem in that case, of course, isn't with the car. The problem is with the person and their evil intention with the car. And the same is true when it comes to the Bible. The Bible is exceedingly good, guys. It is the revelation of God to us, right? These are the words of life. These are the very words of God spoken to us, which have the power to transform our hearts and our minds and change our lives. But can the Bible be hijacked and used in ways that it was never meant to be used or intended to be used? Of course. But in that case, is the problem with the Bible or is the problem with the person and their malintention? Well, of course it's the latter. The question is this, when you come to the Bible or when I come to the Bible, are we coming to it in order to hear what it says and let it speak to us on its own terms and to let it shape us and form us into certain kind of people? Or are you coming to the Bible looking to justify what you already think and do? There's a really big difference between the two. Let me give you an example. You know, did you know this? There is a verse in the Bible that says, There is no God. That phrase is found in the Bible. Did you know that? There is no God. Wow, right? Wow, the Bible says there is no God. Those actual words are in the Bible. Well, of course they are. But if you read that verse in its entire context, rather than stripping it from its context and ripping it out of place from the surrounding words around it, well, you can make it say almost anything you want it to say. But if you take it on its own terms, you'll find that those words, there is no God, are surrounded by other words. And that the whole phrase says this, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. So does the Bible say there is no God? Yes, but is the intention of the Bible to express that there is no God? Not at all, just the opposite. Do you see what I'm saying? If you want, you can actually use the very words of the Bible to misrepresent the message of the Bible. And sometimes people do that. They use the words of the Bible and take them out of context and twist their meaning and use them in ways that the Bible never intended them to be used. Now, I told you this just a minute ago. I said the most likely person statistically in the United States to beat their wife or girlfriend is a man who claims to be a Christian, who identifies as an evangelical Christian, but does not go to church. Now, both of those factors are important. Here's what's interesting. Let's look at another statistic. One of the least likely people in the United States to beat their wife or girlfriend is an evangelical Christian who attends church regularly. Huge swing. So church attendance differentiates those apparently who are more likely to beat their wives from those who are almost not at all likely to beat their wives. Well, why? Does that mean that going to church makes you stop beating your wife? Well, hopefully, yes. But, but maybe it's something deeper than that. Maybe it's this. What's more likely is this, that those who attend church weekly or regularly, they have a couple things that people who don't attend church have. For, first of all, they are being shaped week in and week out by the whole counsel of God's word. 
Hey, Pastor Nick here. Are you looking for a resource to help you answer some of the most difficult questions about God in the Bible? Then we've got good news for you. I've written a book called The God I Won't Believe In, Facing Nine Common Barriers to Embracing Christianity. In this book, I deal directly with some of the biggest questions people struggle with, such as how a loving God can allow innocent people to suffer, or whether God condoned genocide in the Old Testament, or whether the Bible encourages the suppression of women and minorities? Does the Bible really say that some kinds of love are wrong? And is there actual proof that God exists and that the Bible is trustworthy? I address these topics and more in this book, which is a great resource for anyone who wrestles with doubts or who has concerns about these topics. And it's a great resource for those who want to help others who have questions about these topics. So to purchase this book, search for The God I Won't Believe In, Facing Nine Common Barriers to Embracing Christianity, wherever books are sold, or visit nickkady.org. And to celebrate the release of this book, we are offering a free copy of the book as a gift to any of our listeners who make a donation of any amount to support Be Set Free Radio at besetfreeradio.com. And now back to today's message. They're being shaped week in and week out by the whole counsel of God's word. Whereas those who are disconnected from church body, they not only lack accountability, that's also a big factor, but their relationship with the Bible is not one of coming to it in order to hear and be shaped by it, but more often it's one where they're coming to it to look for justification for the things that they already think and feel. Where can I find a verse that backs up what I already think about politics, about women, about this and that? And of course they'll find them, but again, that's like stripping something out of its context and not hearing it on its own terms. This is exactly what happened with slavery, isn't it? This is what happened with slavery. Those who wanted to defend the practice of slavery had already made up their minds that they wanted to practice slavery. And so they come to the Bible looking for justification and they found it and they said, look, the Bible talks about slavery, therefore slavery must be okay. Whereas on the other hand, other people who came to the Bible and allowed the whole council of scripture to shape them, they were the very people who went against slavery, right? They said the entire ethic of the Bible counteracts this whole argument for slavery. It goes against slavery, undermines slavery. And, and when the Bible uses the word slavery, it's in a completely different way or different sense than the way that you guys are talking about it. And it was those Christians who led the abolitionist movement against slavery to end it. And they did it, why? Because of the Bible, Okay, so what kind of relationship do you want to have with the Bible? Let me ask you. Do you want to have a relationship with the Bible where you come to it to hear the whole counsel of what Scripture says on its own terms and you let it shape you and shape how you think and live and act? Or have you already made up your mind and you just want to come to the Bible to uh, have it strengthen or, or back up or prove what you already think and what you already do? Now, obviously, the honest approach is the first one, which allows the Bible to speak on its own terms, speak for itself, and allows it to shape us. So what does the Bible say? If we look at the whole Bible, what does it have to say about women and minorities? Well, according to the Bible, women and minorities are three things, equal, unique, and loved. They're probably more than just those three, but those are the three we're going to talk about. Let's talk about these. Equal. The text we read a few minutes ago from Luke chapter 10. It's the story of two sisters, Mary and Martha. Now we know from uh, other places in the Bible, for example, in the Gospel of John, that Mary and Martha 
Uh, they lived in a town called Bethany, which is just on the outskirts of Jerusalem. And they had a brother named Lazarus. And the three of them, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, these siblings, they were all followers of Jesus. And they weren't just followers, but they were actually close personal friends. So Jesus goes into this house at one point uh, in the town of Bethany. Now, we don't know who else was there with him, but from the preceding verses, we see that not only was Jesus with his 12 disciples, but there were large crowds of people who were following Jesus everywhere he went. And so he enters this house, and it's very likely that Jesus is not in this house alone. I mean, it's almost sure that he's at least with his disciples, but perhaps with a large group of people. So here's Jesus. Picture the scene. You know, small house probably has two rooms. Here's Jesus in a living room. He's teaching. It says that he was teaching in the other room. And there's Martha. She's in the kitchen and she's working away. She's trying to be a good host. Meanwhile, Mary, the sister, she's in the living room with Jesus listening to him teach. And Martha gets upset. She complains. She thinks that Mary should be in the kitchen with her, not out in the living room. And Jesus tells Martha, he says, Martha, I can see that you're anxious you're upset, but the stuff that you're anxious about is not necessary. He tells her, the stuff you're worried about is not necessary. He says, one thing is necessary, and Mary has chosen the good portion, and it will not be taken away from her. Now, maybe you're wondering, cool story and all, but how does this have to do with anything that we're talking about? I mean, this, we're talking about women and minorities. What does this story have to do with that? Well, there's something really interesting about this story that I think gets overlooked most of the time when this story gets told. Most of the time when people talk about this story, they say, well, see, the issue here is that Martha is working for Jesus, but Mary is uh, spending time with Jesus. And so you should be a Mary and not a Martha. But here's the deal. The, the issue in this story, that is an issue in this story, absolutely. But it's not the only issue. And it's maybe not even the primary issue. See, it's not just that Martha is working for Jesus and Mary's spending time with Jesus. There's another dynamic going on here, and that's this. Martha is assuming the traditionally female role of serving and providing hospitality, whereas Mary is taking on the traditionally male role of sitting with the other men in the room, the disciples, and listening to the teaching at Jesus' feet. I mean, you can think about it this way. How many of you have ever been at a big family Thanksgiving or a big community Thanksgiving and the women hung out in the kitchen and the men hung out in the other room and watched football, right? You know how that goes. Well, essentially, that's what's going on here. Mary's hanging out in the room with the guys watching football, which in this case is better than football, right? She's listening to Jesus. And Martha is upset that she's not in the kitchen with her doing the ladies' stuff, which is where she should be because she's a woman. Martha wants to make a good impression, and there's a lot of cultural expectations. That's why she's anxious, right? If people come to your house, there's expectations. You've got to provide them something to eat, something to drink. And so she's anxious. She wants to make a good impression. This is Jesus. He's a celebrity. And, and so Martha, she's upset because Mary, in her opinion, is doing something which is reserved for the men, whereas she thinks Mary should be in there doing the women's work with her in the kitchen. And Jesus tells Martha, Martha, look, I know you feel like you have to do all this hospitality stuff. But he says, it's not necessary. He says, I'm not going to tell Mary to stop what she's doing and go with you instead. And here's the point. This is really where it all comes to. Jesus treated women as full-fledged disciples. Jesus treated women as full-fledged disciples, not as second-class disciples. In other words, Jesus didn't expect women to serve him and be his disciples. Rather, he wanted women to be his disciples, and he treated them 
equally with the other disciples. Now by doing this, understand, Jesus was going against the grain of cultural norms of that day, which did not at all treat women as equal with men. Now Luke's gospel in particular really focuses on this aspect of Jesus' ministry. It emphasizes the women who follow Jesus. Even our women's Bible study over this past uh, semester, they've been studying the gospel of Luke and focusing on what it says about the female disciples of Jesus. But in Luke chapter 8, for example, it says that, that Jesus was traveling throughout all the region of Israel teaching and preaching the gospel. And it says his 12 disciples were with him and also many women. And it actually lists three of those women by name. Their names are Mary Magdalene, Joanna, and Susanna. And in fact, Joanna's later mentioned in another chapter in the Gospel of Luke. So she was a prominent disciple. So these three women were especially prominent. Mary Magdalene, Joanna, and Susanna. And it says there were many others. So we see this, this group of female disciples. We see them on multiple occasions throughout Luke's Gospel. Two of these women, Joanna and Susanna, it says in Luke chapter 8, verse 3, that they actually financially supported Jesus' ministry out of their means. Furthermore, some other interesting things we know about Jesus' female disciples. When Jesus was crucified, when he was being crucified and led through the city of Jerusalem, we read that the women were following after him. And that's interesting because Jesus' other disciples, you remember they had scattered, they had run away, they were afraid. They had all run away because they were afraid that they were next. Just as Jesus had been arrested and was being beaten, they were afraid that they were going to be arrested and beaten as well. And, And so they all ran away except for one. You know who it was? John. John is the one who didn't run away. I always think about that. You know, he never, he never pushes that. He always calls himself the, the disciple who Jesus loved. But the fact is, John was also incredibly brave. He's the one who didn't run away when everyone else did. And John was the one who was there at the foot of the cross. But along with John, it seems that these female disciples also didn't run away, but they followed Jesus all the way to the cross. We also know that all four Gospels tell us that the women were the first to come to the tomb on Sunday morning when Jesus rose from the grave. They were the key eyewitnesses to the resurrection. Now that's important because in that culture, women were not allowed to testify in court or their testimony wasn't taken seriously in court. It was considered untrustworthy. And so in other words, let's, let's think about this. If you made up a story, a totally fake story that you, wanna, you want people to believe, you want to pass this story off on people, you would not make women the key witnesses in the story. Why? Because it would be counterproductive. Because nobody would believe a story like that, so why would you tell it? If you were going to make up a story, you would always choose to have somebody, you know, reliable, somebody uh, who seemed legit be your eyewitness. And yet pushing against tradition and culture in all four Gospels, the testimony is given by women. There would have been pressure to eliminate these women from the story and replace them with men who would seem more, uh, let's say, valid or believable to people in that society. And yet the early Christians refused to do that. Why? Well, first of all, because this is what actually happened and they weren't willing to change the facts. And secondly, because they didn't believe that women were less than men. They were following Jesus in this way. Here's what you need to know about that. When Jesus treated minorities and women as equals, this wasn't something 
that he came up with. This wasn't something that was new to him. It wasn't like Jesus made this up. It didn't exist before and Jesus came and totally changed it all. No, see, Jesus was actually being consistent with one of the core teachings of the Bible, which is found in the very most ancient biblical texts. And that is this, that every human being, no matter what their gender, no matter what their race, no matter what their physical level of ability, they are of equal value by nature of the fact that they are created by God and created in the image of God. In the very first chapter of the book of Genesis, we read how God created the world. And it says that after he had created everything else, at the very pinnacle of his creative work, he created human beings. And it says that he created them in his own image. And it says male and female, he created them. Everything that God created, as you go through a story, you know, he creates this and he creates that. And he looks at it and everything he creates, he looks at it and says, it is good. But after he creates human beings, he says something different. He looks at them and what does he say? He says, it is very good. See, out of all of creation, this is what sets human beings apart. That we are created in the image of God. Your cat is nice, but it's not created in the image of God. You've been listening to Be Set Free, the radio outreach of Whitefields Community Church in Longmont, Colorado. We have three in-person services on Sunday mornings at 8, 9.30, and 11 a.m. And our 9.30 and 11 services are live streamed on our website for those who would like to worship with us online. We are located just east of County Line Road and Highway 119 at 2950 Colorful Avenue in Longmont. For more information or to hear other messages from Pastor Nick, visit us online at whitefieldschurch.com. Be Set Free is a listener-supported program. If you have been blessed by this message and would like to support this ministry, you can send a donation via check to 2950 Colorful Avenue, Longmont, Colorado, 80504, or donate online at besetfreeradio.com. 